Okay. <laughs> Let's make another episode of the Robcast. Sound good? I uh, did that last episode where I read from some of my books. It started as an odd idea. Like, I haven't read any of my books. I made them and then put them out. I wonder what it would be like to read them. And that, of course, led to I should record it and uh, offer some running commentary and see where it takes us. And that last episode, honestly, it was so personal and profound and humbling and illuminating. Um, And I actually think I ended up reading from two different books, and it took almost an hour So I have more books. So I'm just going to keep reading random sections from my books and see what happens. (laughs) Isn't that funny how you can have an idea that's like, I don't know. I ran it by Kristen, and she was like, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I ran it by one of my boys, my boy Preston, and he was like, yeah, it's always interesting to hear how and why people made things. So I had two votes from the people I trust the most. Um, But then doing it, like it's like it just kept building ahead of steam. I was like, this is really interesting. So I think I read from two books. That means there's eight more books. I have them all stacked here. So let's do some more of this. Uh, by the way, speaking of some more of this, new tickets and dates are now up for the Introduction to Joy Tour July. I am coming to San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. I know, I know. Those have always been three of the best tour cities. Um, So coming your way, those cities in July, June is Knoxville, Chattanooga, and Louisville, and May is Fresno and Santa Barbara. And then this Thursday... New tickets go on sale for the first dates of the UK leg of the Introduction to Joy Tour. I'm going back to London, Bristol, which is the home of Banksy. I've never been to Bristol. And then Manchester. London, Bristol, and Manchester go on sale this Thursday. And I absolutely love touring in England. And last summer was so great. So I'm coming back. So uh, the Intro to Joy tour just keeps rolling on. And then, speaking of rolling on, uh, next Largo show, May 14th, I'm doing this new show that I have cooked up. Um, It's about sex and death and a bunch of other things. (laughs) So if you haven't been to a Largo show, this is, you know, this is your night. And if you haven't been to Largo, it's just so magic. So May 14th, next Largo show. Tickets are at largo-la.com, or you can get them through my site. There you go. Those are the things that are going on. Now, let's read. Um, you know, when people uh, who've written books, people will say, like, which is your favorite book you've written? And somebody will say, well, which is your favorite kid? And then they always go, see, they're all my favorites. But all my books are not my favorites. Some of them um, are I like way more than others. And there's one of my books that I just am, it's just some, it exists in some other space than all the other books. It's called Drops Like Stars, and it uh, it's the book that I am the most proud of. I just, and partly it was, I don't know if it was the time of life when I wrote it, I wasn't, by the way, this book, Drops Like Stars, I wrote it, the first draft I wrote longhand. I had uh, like, a notebook and pen, I wrote it out, 
the whole thing. And then after months and months of writing every day by hand with pen and paper, I typed up what I'd written. But um, this book, I knew it had to be written that way, and then I knew it was visual. And Mark Boss from Boss Creative, shout out to Boss Creative, did the design. I knew it had to have lots of pictures, and it had to be a coffee table book, which, let's just talk uh, about the behind the scenes here. The publisher was like, you can't do... I remember we had had endless discussions about the quality of paper, and there was a particular mohawk mohawk cardstock paper that we really wanted to use. And the publisher was like, that's just going to make the book too expensive. And then there were all these particular photos we wanted, and the photos had to be um, done just right, just the right saturation, and et cetera, et cetera. And I remember the publisher saying, well, that you can't do that. You can't sell a book... Um, that's just not possible, and the only way it would be possible is if you like totally readjusted the deal. So I remember, like, just yes, of course, of course. I don't care if I make any money; it has to be great. So uh, I remember we restructured the whole publishing deal just so the book could be this big and heavy and colorful and feel the way it does. And now um, this coffee table version has been discontinued so I, I i have a stack of them here in the back house and that's it maybe they're on ebay or something anyway just the process of making the book and knowing what it had to be and just let's make it no matter what it costs so the fact that this book even got made um is and then there's it, it just means more to me than i can even put into words and then there's no intro there's no epilogue there are no chapters it's just one continuous thing so the structure the genre i don't even know what genre you'd call this it's all about uh, the back page, the back cover says a few thoughts on creativity and suffering which has been and this by the way does not this is not about the tortured artist because you know that um trope is out there that to make great art you have to be tortured or miserable i completely reject um such an idea obviously. And uh, so let me open here. Let's go to page. And, and Drop Sex Stars is quite short. It's only uh, 138 pages or something. And a lot of the pages are just big open spaces with like five words. <laughs> That's how you get 138 pages. Just put like a couple of words on each page. Um, I'm giving you all the inside baseball here. But here's one section from Drops Like Stars as read by the author. In 1941, in a village in Nazi-controlled Poland, a young man came home to discover that his father had died while he was at work. What made his father's death exceedingly more unbearable was that several years earlier, both this young man's sister and mother had died. As he held his father's dead body in his arms, he lamented, I'm all alone at 20. I've already lost all the people I've loved. One writer described the moment like this, ripped out of the soil of his background. His life could no longer be what it used to be. He now began a journey to deeper communion with God, but it didn't come without tears and it didn't come without what seems to have been a certain existential horror. Suffering can do that to us. We're jolted, kicked, prodded, and shoved into new realities we never would have brought about on our own. We're forced to imagine a new future because the one we were planning on is gone. 
The key word here is, of course, imagine. That young Polish man sitting on the floor with his dead father in his arm was having all of his boxes smashed to pieces. His life could no longer be what it used to be. Now, for a multiple choice question. If we went to a performing arts center on a Saturday night, and as we walked in, we noticed that everybody was dressed up, and backstage there were various performers pacing back and forth in tights and slippers, and they had Russian last names, we would know that we were at A, the rodeo, B, an insurance convention, C, the grand opening of a new hair salon, D, the ballet. The location and time and clothes of this event are what art theorists call insulators. Insulators frame an event, providing context and helping determine the meaning of an experience for us. But if we went to the ballet and everybody in the audience was wearing snorkels, or the musicians were all red-haired banjo players with no teeth, or instead of being handed a program, we were handed a squirrel, we would immediately begin asking, what is this? But our real question would be, where is this? Where do we put this? How do we place it? Because our standard reference points, the usual insulators, wouldn't be there to guide us. That's often what happens when we suffer. We had things well planned out. We knew what meant what. We had all of our boxes probably organized and labeled. But all of that was disrupted when we began to suffer. So there's out of the box. Oh, by the way, earlier I did this whole thing on how when people say that they're out of the box, um, that means the box is still determining what it even is. So there's one kind of creativity where people say, you know, hey, that's really out of the box. But in that sense, the box is still running the show. Um, and that true creation comes when somebody says, there's a box. <laughs> so there's out of the box, which is often merely a variation of the same thing. And then there are those who think and feel and live and create from a different place. They had their boxes smashed and their insulators dismantled until they had no other option but to imagine a totally new tomorrow. We would call this the art of disruption. Oh, and that young Polish man, his name was Karol Josel Wicholja. But later in life, he was known as Pope John Paul II. Catherine of Aragon said, None get to God but through trouble. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, this book. I love this book. Um, oh, here we go. Here's later in the book, towards the end. Just before he died in 1972, Abraham Joshua Heschel was asked in an interview if he had anything to say to young people. This was his answer. Above all, remember that the meaning of life is to live it as if it were a work of art. You are not a machine. <laughs> oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. When you're young, start working on this great work of art called your own existence. Oh, man, I love that Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, Okay, here we go. Let's keep reading. Page 127. Drops like stars as read by the author. 
Heschel's words remind me of the perspective the sculptor Harriet March gives in one of Susan Howitch's novels. By the way, this isn't in the book. Have you read Susan Howitch? H-O-W-A-T-C-H. Susan Howitch, this British writer. Oh, my word. Um, She did a, I think it's a Starbridge series of novels. I think the first one's called, the first one is called Glittering Images. Just start there. They're like these... Oh, um, almost like psycho, psycho-spiritual explorations in novel form. Her books, oh my word, I, I just don't even know where to start. They're so great. Anyway, apparently I'd been reading a lot of Susan Howitch at this time because this whole next section is me telling the reader about something that happens. Ah, yeah, there's the sculptor Harriet March. Um, when a theologian comes to visit her at her studio and he has all sorts of polished and complicated ideas about God and suffering and life, Harriet explains to him how she sees the world through her work. And then this is a quote from Harriet the Sculptor. But no matter how much the mess and distortion make you want to despair, you can't abandon the work because you're chained to the bloody thing. It's absolutely woven into your soul. And you know you can never rest until you've brought truth out of all the distortion and beauty, out of all the mess. But it's agony, 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 while simultaneously being the most wonderful and rewarding experience in the world. And that's the creative process, which so few people understand. She continues, It involves an indestructible sort of fidelity, an insane sort of hope. And indestructible sort of, well, it's love, isn't it? There's no other word for it. And don't throw Mozart at me. I know he claimed his creative process was no more than a form of automatic writing, but the truth was he sweated and slaved and died young giving birth to all that music. He poured himself out and suffered. That's the way it is. That's creation. You can't create without waste and mess and sheer undiluted slog. You can't create without pain. It's all part of the process. It's in the nature of things. Ever felt like that? Like whatever you were going through wasn't just hard or exhausting or difficult, but that it was sheer undiluted slog? She doesn't give us any answer. She doesn't tell us why making things is like that. She simply says that the point is to stay true to whatever it is that you're creating. And then she finishes with these magnificent words. So in the end, every major disaster, every tiny error, every wrong turning, every fragment of discarded clay, all the blood, sweat, and tears, everything has meaning. I give it meaning. I reuse, reshape, recast all that goes wrong so that in the end, nothing is wasted and nothing is without significance, and nothing ceases to be precious to me. Oh, oh, I love that quote. At the end of, and then I, and then this is me here, at the end of her speech, I have a question. Is she talking about sculpture or life? My hope is that by the end of this book, your answer to that question will be yes. Oh, I didn't even see that coming. Nice one, Rob Bell. Oh, that is fantastic. Is she talking about sculpture or about life? My hope is that your answer would be yes. 
Let me read that again, that, that Harriet March quote. So in the end, every major disaster, every tiny error, every wrong turning, every fragment of discarded clay, all the blood, sweat, and tears, everything has meaning. I give it meaning. I reuse, reshape, recast all that goes wrong so that in the end, nothing is wasted and nothing is without significance and nothing ceases to be precious to me. Oh, you know, um, I'm just now remembering we made a Drops Like Stars film and it's on my site. And uh, so like the, you can see in the show, uh, the film is a live, is me doing the Drops Like Stars show, and all those quotes are up there. Wow, that one, I knew that one was a book I'm most fond of, and now just reading a couple passages from it. Whew, yeah, everything is precious. I give it meaning. Oh, that's so fascinating. Now, um, let's move on. I'm going to try to read, here's the deal, this, this episode, I'm going to try to read from at least three books. Are you, are you feeling me on this? Last time, too? Let's, let's raise the bar high. And um, next, I'm, I just opened up uh, a novel that I wrote, Millones Cojones. It was published by War Books. Um, War is just work of Rob Bell. Here's the thing. When in doubt, if nobody will publish your novel about a B-grade motivational speaker who has a meltdown, then just make up a publishing imprint work of Rob Bell books, and then just make the book yourself. Uh, that's how the thing works. <laughs> so this is different because it's a novel, so I'm, I'm trying to think how to bring you up to speed here. Um, I'm actually, I just opened to page 150, yes, here we go. Page 159, because I reference Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I just quoted in Drop Psych Stars. Do you see all the connections, people? These are the voices that have shaped me. It's interesting, by the way, when I do this, I see how there are these people who I've never gotten to meet who have so profoundly shaped my life, uh, my heart, my soul, my work, etc. Um, so uh, Heschel wrote a book called Sabbath. It's a really thin book. It's only a few pages, and it's incredibly dense, and it's very difficult to get through. And the ideas in it so profoundly changed my life that I had thought for a while, I, I should... You can't write a book about somebody else's book, because that's not a very interesting premise for a book. Hey, this, this is my new book. It's about some other guy's book. But I did have this sense for years. I wish there was some way to make some of the ideas in Heschel's book more accessible to more people while letting them know this is all from Abraham Heschel. So in my novel, Millones Cajones, one of the things I decided to do is have one of the characters give one of the other characters the Heschel book on Sabbath and have him not understand it and then have a, the other character explain it to him. <laughs> so... And by the way, I remember telling my uh, literary agent that I was going to do this in my novel, and he's like, you can't really, that's kind of lame to like use one book to just highlight another book. And I was like, I know, but it's so perfectly lame. <laughs> so what happens is this um, motivational speaker has this meltdown, and so he checks himself in. He grows a beard, starts wearing sweatpants, gains a bunch of weight. So he's like unrecognizable. And then he checks himself into this treatment center in Arizona. 
And part of his treatment is he has to meet with this therapist named Dwight. And uh, that's like, there's like, like certain base level requirements he has to meet to stay at this therapy, at this uh, recovery center. And so one of them is he has to meet with this therapist and the therapist gives him um, Heschel's book um, on Sabbath. Do you see what I did there? And so he's given a time and he's told to go up this trail in the desert and he would find um, the therapist where they're going to have their first session where they're going to discuss the first chapter of Heschel's book. So I follow the trail. This is, um, and the character's name is V, the motivational speaker. And he's, his life is completely falling apart, so he's just a wreck. I follow the trail past the phone booth, around a group of huge rocks. They must be 10 feet tall. And there I find Dwight sitting in a chair, barefoot, reading a book. There's another chair next to his, and in between them there's a table with a pitcher of water with lemons in it, surprise, surprise, and a footrest between the chairs. Surprise, surprise must mean that's a reference to something earlier in the book, but I don't know what it is because I, once again, haven't read my book. And there's a footrest between the chairs. It's like a living room on the side of a mountain in among cactus and rocks. (laughs) That's funny. Dwight says, Rue. Oh, yeah, that's right. He checked in under a fake name. So he goes by Rue, R-U-E. That's what they all think his name is there. Rue, it's so good to see you. Please sit down. And this is all told from the perspective of V, also known as Rue. Uh, me, this is quite a setup you have here. Dwight, you should see the sunrise from here. It's like you're the only person on the earth when the dawn rises up and takes the earth by its edges. That's a line from one of my favorite poems. Me, not quite knowing what to say to that. Well, here we are. I read that book you gave me, at least the part you wanted me to, the prologue. I sound like a boy trying to impress his teacher. Dwight has this effect on me, despite giving me a terrible book to read. He's so still. It could be the setting, but I think it's also him. He's a perfect match for the setting. By the way, he's wearing old trousers. By the way, he's wearing old trousers that were cut off above the ankles, and a trucker hat and a T-shirt that says G-Rap on it. <laughs> There's a shout out to Grand Rapids on page 159 of my novel. Dwight says, "And what did you think?" Me. Well, Heschel is clearly a deep thinker. I felt like he took his time making his points. And I, Dwight, are you lying, Rue? Me. Yes, I am. I don't feel bad admitting it. He has the same sort of power that Sister has. It's another one of the therapists he has to meet with. They're sharp and smart, and yet you can be totally honest, and you don't feel, feel like you're going to be judged by it. So I continue. I hated it. I didn't get it. It made no sense. And the more I read it, the more lost I got, if that's possible. It might as well have been in another language. Dwight, it kind of is. Me, which one? Dwight. Heschel is his own type of other language, and learning new languages takes time. Me, I'm not following you. Well, let's break it down to its smallest parts. What exactly didn't you get? Well, okay, how about the first line? He starts talking about NASA and stuff, and then he totally changes the topic. Dwight laughs a deep, throaty laugh that would normally cause a person to laugh as well when they heard it. It's that contagious. But I don't laugh because the laugh is clearly at my expense. He then says, technical civilization is man's conquest of space. Me. Yes, that's it. You have it memorized? It's classic. What makes it classic? Dwight, we're not, he's not talking about NASA here. He's talking about physicality, earth, the material world, soil and clothes and money and bodies. 
Heschel is talking about the world we can access with our senses, me. So he's not talking about outer space? No, he's talking about our world, me. Then why doesn't he just say that, Dwight? Because he has a larger point. He opens the book by saying that our modern world, with all of our technology and advancements and factories and innovations, has been about conquering what we can see. So in that sense, yes, you could say putting a man on the moon is part of that, but there is a cost to all of that conquest, me, which is, Dwight, notice the second line. Dwight hands me his book because I didn't bring mine, which humbles me because I'm trashing this book that I don't even have in front of me. Not only did I not understand it, but now I can't even read what I don't get. I am chastened. I read the line, it is a triumph frequently achieved by sacrificing an essential ingredient of existence, namely time. Dwight, make sense? Me, not really. Dwight, read the next line. Me, in technical civilization, we expend time to gain space. Dwight, you see, he's setting up contrasting objectives. There is stuff, which he later calls thingness. Me, yes, I remember thinking what a vague word thingness is. Yes, Dwight says, thingness is Heschel's word for stuff, which is the word we use. He's establishing these two things we pursue, the first being thingness. We work and we labor and we stress ourselves to get things. Nine to five, 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. We work the hours, which is time, to get paid so that we can buy things. We trade the one for the other. We earn a paycheck, we spend it. We buy, we consume, we conquer, we achieve, we win. Me, I know all about that. Dwight, apparently you know about that. But what he's saying here is that life isn't just about things. It isn't just about how much we can accomplish and accumulate in a certain amount of time. Time is useful for other things as well. Oh, I love that. Time is useful for other things as well. Okay, and now we're getting into it here, peoples. Me, which is why he uses the word sacrifice. Dwight, yes. He says that it's possible to have worked so hard and pushed yourself so far and put in so many hours that you've accumulated things, but you've missed time. Dwight, uh, me, how do we miss time? Dwight, let me ask you a question. Do you have any kids? Me, yes, a daughter. Dwight, tell me about her birth. I tell him what I remember, including the part where Chloe grabbed the doctor by his shirt and yelled in his face, give me the drugs. I talk about holding Karis for the first time, hearing her cry for the first time. Dwight, is that a thing? Me, is what a thing? Dwight, what you just told me. Me, do you mean, is my daughter a thing? Dwight, no, she's a person. I'm talking about what you just told me. Is it a thing? Me, no, it's a story. Dwight, and what do we call stories from the past? Me, history? History? We call them memories, moments in time that we carry with us forever. What kind of car were you driving the day she was born? What were you wearing? How much money was in your bank account on that day? Me, I have no idea what I was wearing. I guess I could look at pictures. I could probably figure out the car. I could look up old bank records. What would be the point? Dwight, yes, Rue, yes. Do you see what you were wearing and what you were driving and your net worth are irrelevant in light of that memory of her birth, aren't they? Me, It's time versus things. Is that what you're saying? Dwight, yes, that's what Heschel is saying. He's saying that in our modern quest for achievement and wealth and thingness, we're losing our awareness of moments. 
Notice what he says here. He points to a line, and I read, the power we attain in the world of space terminates abruptly at the borderline of time. But time is the heart of existence. Me. And my memory of her birth, that's the heart of existence? Dwight, yes. Dwight is on fire now. His eyes leap and his feet tap the ground. He is electric. He quotes, There is a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to be in accord. Me, where'd you get that? Dwight, it's on the next page. We both laugh. Dwight says, it's not always how much you can get done, Rue, how much we can accomplish. The truly wealthy are the ones who understand the power of moments. Me, reading ahead, we cannot conquer time through space. We can only master time in time. Dwight, oh yes, this part is brilliant. He essentially says that working harder, spending more hours trying to obtain things, will not get you a better handle on time. You can't get the one through the other. Time functions completely differently than space. I read another line, which actually makes some sense to me. We must not forget that it is not a thing that lends significance to a moment. It is a, the moment that lends significance to things. Dwight jumps out of his chair and does a little jig around his living room on the side of the mountain. He is clearly brilliant and well-read and insightful, but he also has no shame and is willing to look like a child. He keeps repeating in a sing-songy sort of way, it's not a thing that lends significance to a moment, it is the moment that lends significance to things. For a moment, I wonder if we're in some kind of new Dr. Seuss musical. It all feels so real. Dwight, don't you see, Rue? It wasn't the car you were driving that day, that was just a car but that was the car you drove your baby girl home in. The moment, that moment of driving her home for the first time is what makes that car, that thing significant. And your shirt you were wearing that day, who cares? But when you look at those pictures, that's the shirt you were wearing the first time you held your girl. Don't you see, Rue? Don't you see me? I think so. I think so. Dwight, the moment is what makes those things matter, not the other way around. Time, moments, the present, something unfolding right here in our midst, that's where life is. Woo, that is like two pages. You know what I just realized? I, I have distinct memories of writing this novel um, the year that our daughter was, my daughter was born. And I even think I have a picture of typing this novel with this infant baby on my lap. I could like just reach over top of her with a laptop on the edge of my desk. And isn't that interesting that the character here, the story between Rue and Dwight is all about the birth of his daughter, who's like a high school kid, I think at that point in the novel. But it's all... Uh, it's interesting that that's, oh, man. Yeah, so I don't know if that worked for you, reading just a random section of a novel where you don't know the story, but hopefully you can see what I was trying to do there is take uh, 
some thick writing from Abraham Heschel and put it into a conversation with a guy who's really clueless and a guy who's really tuned in and have him gradually, almost like Shakespeare. You know, when you start reading Shakespeare, you're like, I have no idea what anybody's saying. But if you just stick with it, you start to find the cadences, you start to find the turns of speech, and then you begin like, it's like Shakespeare, your Shakespeare muscles build up and then you're fine in Shakespeare. Oh, it's not things that make moments significant. It's moments that make things significant. Oh, man. Yeah, see that? All that about time and space, thingness, objects accumulating, thinking about time in different ways. Uh, these were all... This I wrote this in 2009... 2000, yeah. So the ideas for this that uh, novel were 2006, seven, and eight. Um, that just completely transformed the way I see everything. And now, honestly, I see time so differently than I used to that it's like hard for me to remember that I used to see it a different way. Um, yeah, yeah. And and honestly, reading that, that was when I that was when I was realizing that being present is the goal. Presence is actually the thing. And at the time, obviously, like a lot of people in the modern world, I just went, just go, go, go. How much stuff can you fit into the calendar? And you can see in this novel I'm working through, it didn't work for me. Uh, that, that idea, that way, like production being the highest goal, it just didn't work. Efficiency being sort of the main metric that you gauge your life by. Uh, I just rejected those things out of hand um, and just headed in a different direction. And now life is so completely different. Um, yeah, isn't that interesting? You, you look back on it and see. I, also, I realize these books, they're so personal. It, it's almost like um, the books are how I was working out what's been happening in me all these years. By the way, I should go back and say, I remember when I first became a pastor and I would, uh, for a little while there, until it just didn't work, I, I would uh, hang out in pastor world. And I would notice that a pastor would say something like, um, hey, have you, have you read such and such book? And I noticed how many pastors would say to me things like, have you read such and such? It's so amazing. It's blowing my mind. Of course, I can never say that, you know, in my sermons or something because people would freak out. And I noticed how many uh, spiritual leaders, at least in pastor world, had the path that they were on, the things that were lighting them up, the things that were showing them the way, that were expanding their heart and consciousness. And then, and then, they had this job that demanded that they say certain things, repeat the party line, um, you know, keep the institution going in the right direction. And I noticed how many would, uh, it's almost like they had like a, a game face, like a Sunday role that they were hired to play. And so they would tell you in moments of confession or just sort of off the record, what they were really thinking about, where they really were um, in their life. And then there was sort of the role they were playing. And I, I distinctly remember in my late 20s 
realizing, oh, I don't get to do that. <laughs> Not only do I get to, get to do that, I can't. I, I am incapable of that act. And I distinctly remember thinking, I am here to go somewhere and to keep going and to never stop exploring and discovering and to follow the life wherever it takes me. And if it doesn't work and if I blow the whole place up and if I, I, you know, when you have like a young kids and health insurance and all that, if I lose my job, better for that to happen. Maybe I'll even get some critics. Who knows? <laughs> uh, better to follow this where it, it leads than to do that like two different people thing, than to play this role publicly and then have this other thing. So it's interesting. Uh, what do we look at? Drop Sex Stars, Millions of Companies. A lot of these books are me working it out in public. Um, it has to be integrity, airtight integrity all the way through. Oh, man. Okay, we, let's do another one, shall we? Um, there's also, there's a book that I wrote with my friend Don Golden, and we used to work together, and he would riff on things, and then I would riff, and then we'd go to get tacos at this place that had this insanely hot sauce. Um, and one day he's doing a riff, and, and I'm going back, and then he's it's like tennis. He hits it back over the net. Then I hit it over the net. And I remember saying to him, Don, this is a book. And he hadn't written a book before. He's like, really? And I was like, this is a book. Let's write a book together. And uh, so we wrote this book. And I, ha um, I have this friend, Stratton, who always says, that's your, this book. Um, so the book we wrote is called Jesus Wants to Save Christians. But I have this friend, Stratton, who always says, that's your most dangerous book. That's the most radical book. I've had a number of people say that to me. They've been like, people think your other books are whatever. Man, Jesus wants to save Christians. That's the book that really, that's the book that could like, if people want to get angry, that's the book that's like, you know, lights things up. So this is uh, Jesus Wants to Save Christians, Learning to Read a Dangerous Book. Here is from the intro. Uh, oh, that's right. Here, I'm just whipping open the pages. Oh, man. This intro, I remember, oh, I remember writing this. I remember Don and I had been knocking these ideas around, and then I said to him, let me just take a crack at writing it, and then you can always add your writing to it. But let me just take a crack at an intro and tell me what you think. And I remember reading it to him, because he'd been like, a book? How do you write a book? I don't think, that, is this a book? And then reading this to him and him being like, oh my word, this is a book. But here we go. There is a new invention at the airport. Page six, Jesus wants to save Christians. There is a new invention at the airport. Before we board our plane, we have to go through security. Many of us have had the joy of standing there in our socks with our belt off, desperately searching our pockets for anything metal that could set off the detector and cause us to be subjected to the wand, a handheld device that is passed over the body, beeping when it detects anything made of metal. The wand is difficult enough, but when the person using it is wearing rubber gloves, it just doesn't help the experience, does it? One of us, after being selected for a random security check, was asked with a straight face by a TSA official, would you like me to give you a full body pat down here, or we could step into a private room off to the side if you'd find that preferable? But enough of our traumatic airport flashbacks. There's a new invention at the security checkpoint called the air puffer. 
It's only for people who have been randomly, quote, end of quote, selected for extra security measures. The air puffer is about the size of a phone booth. You step into it, it makes a low buzzing sound, and then it shoots bursts of air all over our body. A green light then comes on, the glass doors in front open, and we're free to exit. We are given no instructions and receive no explanation as to why exactly being shot with little bursts of air all over one's body makes the world a safer place. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Apparently, it has something to do with detecting the presence of explosive substances. What is most frightening about the air puffer is not the unexpected puffs of air. What is most frightening is that we do it. Thousands of us each day step in, feel the breeze, wait for the light, exit, and then set off in search of our belt and shoes. Because if we were to protest, we would immediately be escorted into a, quote, private room to the side for who knows what. And besides, we have to catch our plane. Now, as we leave the air puffer, collect our belongings, and make our way toward the gate, our plane is departing from... Oh, make our way towards the gate our plane is departing from. The first thing we hear is a television. There are many of them all over the terminal. They are set to the same channel, a news show that is custom made for airports. The length of the segment before it repeats. Uh, the, the length of the segment. I'm having trouble reading my own book. <laughs> the length of the segment before it repeats is about the average length of time a person sits waiting for their plane. This news channel gives up-to-date pictures and reports on news from around the world, including the latest word from the government on just how safe or unsafe it is to travel. Which takes us back to the air puffer. On the side of the air puffer is a logo, a large logo of a very well-known, very large American company that has made hundreds of millions of dollars over the years selling convenient, time-saving devices for every aspect of our lives. And now, in addition to toasters and irons and refrigerators, they manufacture and sell air puffers. Keeping us safe is very, very profitable. Which takes us back to the televisions, where a reporter is showing us pictures of a brand new plane the American military has just unveiled that cost $50 billion to create. This plane can do what no other plane can do. It can hover like a helicopter and then fly like a jet. And this, by the way, that ex- this exact plane just flew over my head the other flew over my head, flew over our house the other day. Um, and this particular television network has been granted the privilege of taking the first civilian flight aboard this wonder of technology and innovation. Which takes us back to something that's next to the air puffer, a fully equipped security checkpoint that is not in use and has been roped off. It is brand new, and next to it is a sign describing the advanced features of this new machine and how this is a security checkpoint of the future. It even has little walls with detectors in them that you walk between so you don't have to take off your shoes. Being safe is getting more convenient by the moment. By the way, can you just feel the sarcasm on these pages? Whew! Which takes us back to the television. The reporter is now talking about a recent debate among government leaders concerning funding for homeland security. Various members are arguing for and against certain sums for increased security measures, and somewhere in the course of the broadcast, it is stated that the war America is fighting is on its way to costing a trillion dollars. For purposes of the debate, a distinction is being made between the cost of the war over there and the cost of ensuring our safety here. The nearly trillion dollars is for the effort over there, and there's another budget for our security here. 
And it's an equally mind-blowing amount of money. When we hear it, we think, that's a lot of air puffers and rubber gloves. <laughs> oh, my word. Oh, this is good. Woo. Which takes us back to that air puffer. The air puffer that we paid for with our tax dollars to keep us safe with our tax dollars from the people we're fighting. To hear about every day on the news we're paying for with our consumption of the products advertised during the commercial breaks from the news. The news that tells us how unsafe the world is. Which takes us back to the television to a report they are now doing about how gas prices are going to go up again and global supplies of oil simply aren't what they used to be. We hear this news as we walk by an advertisement on the wall for a large American-made automobile. It seats seven people and has a television. This vehicle does not get very many miles to the gallon. One can't help wonder, is there an enemy of America hiding somewhere in a cave, laughing, already plotting some other way to harm us that will have nothing to do with airplanes? Or are they plotting nothing because they realize that whatever they might do next, it will be nowhere as destructive as what we're already doing to ourselves. We are east of Eden. Something is not right. The Germans had a word for this. They call it Ursprache. Ursprache is the primal, original language of the human family. It is a language of paradise that still echoes in the deepest recesses of our consciousness, telling us that things are out of whack, deep in our bones, deep in the soul of humanity. Something about how we relate to one another has been lost. Something is not right within the world. Back to that television in the airport. On the news are sound bites from a speech by the President of the United States. He's on the deck of an aircraft carrier proclaiming victory in a recent military effort. Not only was the mission accomplished, according to the leader of the world's only superpower, but American forces are now occupying this Middle Eastern country until peace can be fully realized within its borders. This puts a Christian in an awkward place because Jesus was a Middle Eastern man who lived in an occupied country and was killed by the superpower of his day. Hoo-wee. Man, oh man. So when the commander-in-chief of the most powerful armed forces humanity has ever seen quotes the prophet Isaiah from the Bible in celebration of military victory, we must ask, is this what Isaiah had in mind? We should get very nervous when the flag and the Bible start holding hands. This is not a romance we want to encourage. Oh, man, this book. Woo! And then this book is all about essentially a rereading of the Bible. Um, Don and I wanted to introduce what's called a new exodus theology or a new exodus reading of the Bible, which begins with the liberation of slaves from Egypt and argues that the liberation from oppression is uh, a central storyline of the entire Bible, and that the Bible is actually a deeply subversive political document, that it's about justice, it's about rights, it's about having an ear for the cry of the poor and oppressed. Oh, I could go on and on. You know, uh, it's really interesting to me reading that, because it's the Iraq war that radicalized me at some 
uh, heart level. It, it helped me understand the Bible, what the Bible really is, and it helped me understand uh, the American Empire and how this Jesus Christian thing got enmeshed with empire, and the word for that is antichrist. It showed me just how evil, I think evil is the word, this pervasive evil that invaded the American ecosystem when the Jesus message got conflated with American imperialism around the world. And uh, so that reference there to George Bush on that aircraft carrier and quoting the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is written in a time of exile. These Hebrews are conquered by this Babylonian military superpower. They're hauled away into exile. And in exile, they talk in the Middle East, they talk and they dream of a new day of liberation when they won't be oppressed by this oppressive, violent superpower. Um, so when the leader of the most powerful global military superpower humanity's ever seen lands on an aircraft carrier and quotes Isaiah, uh, Isaiah was talking about the exact kind of liberation we need from tanks and aircraft carriers. I mean, it's, oh, so upside down. By the way, also when I started talking about all this publicly and the American military machine and the way in which every empire, an empire needs an animating myth. Um, you have to have a story that animates the accumulation of weapons and wealth. Um, when I started talking about this, I thought I had experienced pushback before, and I thought I had critics before, but I discovered that you can talk about God, heaven, and hell. You can talk about all of humanity. You can, you can talk about all that, and people get a little cranked up, but I discovered that there's something that matters to people way more than their spiritual convictions, and that is America. <laughs> I, I remember um, I did a whole series of sermons against the war in Iraq because, well, you, if you don't speak out about that, then you just don't speak out about anything. And um, I remember people, it was a level of anger. Like you, you can talk about, you can speculate about whatever, quote unquote, the spiritual realm, but you start talking about the flag, that's actually the religion. Um, free market capitalism, that's the religion for a number of people. And I would argue to this day right now, the gun, uh, the Second Amendment is, is actually the absolute. Say whatever you want, you know, about some ethereal realm of spirits or God or something, but you can see the absolute, the actual idol shifts um, from here to there. But um, this book was essentially showing you, we go, by the way, if you found, if, if my book, What is the Bible? Um, you were like, wait, I haven't heard this. Then this book is, it just goes through the Bible in order, showing you um, the Bible is the original Rage Against the Machine. Um, it's written by a small minority group of people um, who have been oppressed by one military superpower after another. This is why, obviously, so many Americans, um, the Bible has become such a confusing thing, and it's been so horrifically misread, is if you are a citizen of a global military superpower, you might misread uh, some of its central 
ideas. Wow, that one. And then there, and then there's a chapter um, called Genital Free Africans, which, you know, uh, that chapter, I'm just seeing it right now. David's Other Son, Get Down Your Harps is one of the chapters. Oh, that's right, that's right, David's Other Son, because David had the son Solomon, but Solomon builds a temple using slave labor. So Solomon, King Solomon, is a descendant of slaves who were rescued from Egypt, and then he builds a temple using slave labor to honor the God who rescues people from slavery. So Solomon is essentially the new Pharaoh, and we talk about how that's one of the key verses in the entire Bible, is if you forget your story, you are bound to build the same kind of empires that once oppressed your people. Um, And then we talk about how what happens with the prophets. Uh, there's a chapter called Swollen Belly Black Babies. Woo, this book just goes for it. I love it. Um, we talk about how the Hebrew prophets began to imagine a new day, uh, a new day when the earth would be shaped in new ways, and how this birth of prophetic imagination is a key moment in human history, and how uh, a lot of what's happening in the world today is the reclaiming of the prophetic imagination. Man, oh man, oh man. So, there you go, my friends. Did we read? Yes, we did. We read through three books, so we're halfway through the books. (laughs) Oh, this is really interesting. It's almost like there are uh, these different periods. Like this, Jesus Wants to Save Christians reflects a period um, of, of like a like a radicalization politically in the Bible and reading the biblical narrative in a whole new way. Milionis Cajones is about uh, well, actually, it's about my own healing. Um, it's actually a it's a novel, but it's absurd. But because it's like my way of throwing you off from the scent, which is it's all about my own um, journey into greater health. And Drops like stars was me trying to. Uh, it's almost like you can feel me trying to make sense of all um, of the suffering that I saw up close all those years, visiting people in hospitals and doing funerals, and my love of art and making things, and what I kept noticing about walking with people through terrific, horrific suffering, and then my own joy in making things, and how it was often the same truths in these two vastly different spaces, which made me realize, oh, everything is spiritual. Everything's connected with everything else. And there we have it. Wow. So um, you, whatever you're in, whatever period you're in, whatever chapter you're in, Uh, It's very normal. It's very normal to go through a period where all you can think about is a certain group of things, or you can only think about X and Y, uh, because that's what you're learning right now. Very, very normal. And then you sort of work that one through, and it begins to make more sense, and then a new thing arises. You're like, now I got to work through this. How exciting is this? If you, the great uh, artist Robert Irwin talks about how uh, in your life, you're pursuing a line of inquiry. That that's where the energy and life comes from. You're pursuing a line of inquiry. So what happens is, 
you have these questions, they're the burning questions, and so you follow them, you see where they take you, and you get answers. You, you, you get answers, that's how it works. Um, and then what happens is those answers create new questions. So then you follow those questions. Uh, and I can see that in these books here. Uh, you're, you're following this line of inquiry, trying to make sense of it. The, um, and you get answers. All right. Whew, this is some, what an interesting experience to do this and to do it with you all. So um, we're only halfway through, so you know what that means. We're going to have to do a part three. So next uh, episode, we'll do part three. Grace and peace, my friends.